Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. She stared at me, the crap coating her hair and dripping down her ears. I turned back to stirring my pot with a small smile on my face. This program features the work of 2016 writer Anise Giselle. She spoke with curator Karen Finneyfrock about her work. So your project for Jack Straw is a young adult novel. Tell me about it. Well, I've called it Pinweight for now, and it's about a young Filipina girl. It's the summer after her high school graduation, and her mother kicked her out at 16. And now that she's 18, her mother's returned looking to reconcile. So it's about many things, but that's the main thread. Where did this story come from? Well, I feel like this is pretty obvious to anyone I describe um, the plot to, but she comes from me. (laughs) Uh And so she's queer, she's uh, Filipina, she has a mother who struggles with relationships with men and taking care of herself and her family. The main character, Easton, also struggles with a lack of ambition. (laughs) Uh, That's me, too. You've said that you strive to write characters who are morally ambiguous. (laughs) Um, What do you mean by that, and why do you write characters that way? I am a people pleaser (laughs) at my core. And even though my life mostly looks like rebellion from the outside, at my core, there's this constant, like, running, needing to please whoever's in front of me (laughs) at any point. And I write morally ambiguous characters because I wish I had seen them more when I was younger. I wish there had been more morally ambiguous uh, women in my life who were courageously open about it with me and not just sort of practicing moral ambiguity behind closed doors. (laughs) And... I wish I had that, especially, I think, in the Filipino culture where you're supposed to be Maria Clara and there's a strong religious foundation there. I think it's important to represent women who are both Asian and subversive. So you have written the phrase, I want to make it impossible to dismiss or diminish me. What do you mean by that? I wrote a character who is very physically small in a culture that values physical smallness. And she's very reluctant to talk about emotional issues in a culture that rewards that kind of silence. And I wrote this character based off of me. (laughs) And because of those two traits that she and I share, people have often dismissed me, and I've allowed them to. So I write 
in order to show people that I am aware of how they see me and I'm aware of all the power dynamics that take place that make it possible for them to treat me like they do. Do you hope that young readers will be um, affected by the book in the same way that in some way they won't feel that others can diminish them uh, after reading the book? That's the dream, isn't it? Because I was someone who was deeply affected by the books I read growing up and still am affected by books I read now. I don't think one book can do that, but I hope it becomes part of a wave of books that allows Jessica Hagedorn to finally, like, rest her weary self and not represent all Filipino writers that are being taught in schools. You and I first met through Poetry Slam, and now you're writing a novel. What did you learn from Slam that has helped you as a storyteller? That writing is meant to be understood (laughs) and that it isn't about the cleverest line or the most complicated metaphor that you want someone to be able to understand you. And also that writing doesn't have to be a trauma Olympics, that there's really beautiful writing that's about simple and true things in life and not always about the most dramatic, darkest parts that may not even feel authentic to the writer. But of course, there's room for the dark, which is also what I learned from Slam, to be more comfortable with that. Is it hard to live as a writer in a city that's growing the way Seattle is? It would be harder not to be a writer in a gentrifying city. Because then I would feel like I have no voice. And maybe gentrification is happening faster than we can fight it. (laughs) And maybe it'll overpower us in the end. But if I couldn't explain to people every step of the way exactly why it hurts, then it would just be complete erasure. I think one of the reasons it's hard to be a writer in a gentrifying city is that I'm more drawn to writers who are basically people who chose to write because they had something they deeply needed to say. And I think on the flip side of that, there are people who want to be writers, and so they look for things to write about. It makes me really sad when I go to readings and I feel in my gut that the lineup consists primarily of people who decided they wanted to be writers and so looked for things to write about. Because to me, that shows an immense amount of privilege and it shows me that they were ensconced in so much safety growing up that they never had to hide things that became absolutely necessary to stay as adults. So tell me about a time when you were younger, when you first felt that you wanted to be a writer or perhaps realized that you were a writer. I know I started journaling because I couldn't talk about anything that was going on in my life growing up as a result of my culture and my family and my community. And after college, I did an AmeriCorps year in Anchorage. 
And I started doing open mics with my poetry. And that's when I knew that there was something important about finding other people who were like me. That's when I knew I wanted to be a writer. Because if you said the hardest thing that ever happened to you, three people would find you afterwards and say, I'm like you. Now we'll hear a selection from Anissa's live reading. So I'll be reading excerpts from my young adult novel, Pinweight, which is about a young, queer, Filipina-American girl whose brother runs away when she's 16, and her mother kicks her out shortly after. I just want to give you a little bit of personal context for my writing. Uh, I grew up in the Philippines, and even there, I was mostly consuming narratives about white people, created by white people. And for me, this made it seem normal that I didn't think my life was worth looking at. And I think that made it harder for me to grow to understand the adults in my family and myself. So I wrote this. And I want to frame it with a quote by the writer Nancy Kim. There's a problem that all of us as human beings have to deal with, of feeling and being alone. But aggravate that loneliness with invisibility, an inability to perceive yourself as a protagonist, and it becomes a whole other beast. Not only are you lonely, but no one thinks you look good while being lonely. Because no one even knows what you look like. That's the feeling I'm trying to write myself out of. No one even knows what you look like. All right, this is Pinweight. It's a flashback to when Easton still lived with her mother and her brother Armando. My mom disappeared once. She'd slap me across the face with a fly swatter after I ignored something she said and had known she wanted me to acknowledge her. She could talk for days, literally days, without asking me a single question. And girls at school would say they were going to ask their mom to help with new bike tires or to talk to the drama teacher about missing rehearsal. And I would be jealous of these stupid girls who didn't have anything else I wanted. And my mom would talk about herself and her men and her clients, like I could be anyone standing in her house with ears. And sometimes I pretended I wasn't listening just to piss her off. But she wasn't having it that night. She slapped me across the face with the fly swatter. I had been stirring her fish stock and skimming out the slimy residue that rises to the top. With the skin of my cheek crawling, I watched my hand take that bowl of scum and dump it over her head. She stared at me, the crap coating her hair and dripping down her ears. I turned back to stirring my pot with a small smile on my face. I listened to her leave the room. Armando knocked on my bedroom door that night and woke me up. Do you know where mom is? 
he said. She isn't in her bedroom. It was 3 a.m. Do you think we should look for her? He asked. I wished he had said, I'm going to look for her. He could have said it. Maybe I mean I could have said it. But it was 3 a.m. and I was the immobilizing kind of afraid. The thought careening, heart aborting, better to just ignore it, afraid. And I wanted to flip back onto my belly and muffle my drum roll pulse with sleep. I said it was fine. She was probably at her boyfriend's. The newest one lived alone. I reached out to pat Armando's hand, and he said, don't be weird. And I said, fuck you. And our grins were shaky. After he shut my door, I curled up under my blankets again. With this dim Catholic sense, I was being punished. You don't believe in that anymore, I thought. She wasn't back the next day when I got home from school. The house was airless without her. I wanted her to ask me to sit on her feet and read aloud from people while she did her 500 sit-ups. I wanted her to ask me to lie in bed with her for a minute and listen to Whitney because she was having a very hard day. I would curl inside the comforter with her, little landslides of used Kleenex tumbling off and her arm would wind itself around my waist. She hadn't looked surprised, not even for a second, when I had dumped the bowl of fish grease over her. Her face had been cold, resigned to the fact that what had happened had happened, but dead fucking sure she had not deserved it. She hadn't deserved it. What kind of person pours shit over their mother I took the bus to her boyfriend's house. When I knocked, a white man answered with the heavy-lidded, full-lipped face of a bulldog. He had hair like straw and eyes the dirty color of water rushing over the shore. A brown leather belt ached over his midsection, hard and bloated, and I pictured it pressing against my mother's concave stomach. It was only the second time I had seen Jason. She's in the living room, he said, moving aside for me to enter. Maybe you can get her home. She was sitting silently on the floor, huddled between the couch and a short coffee table. Both her palms splayed down on the tabletop glass. Her right cheek was a blast of red. I looked up at Jason. He paced the hallway, Cracking his knuckles, the front door is still pointedly open. Can you get her home? Not a problem, I said, helping her up. I wanted to scratch him, draw blood. I wanted the meat and tusk-like bones to rain blows on him without a question of who might win. Every muscle in my body tensed as we walked past him to leave. I stayed between him and my mom. When we reached the bus stop, I glanced behind us. There was no one. My mother sat on the bench, 
I cupped her shoulders gently and tried to get her to look up at me. Hey, I said. She smiled faintly, her nose chafed pink. Hey. Fresh tears spilled. I'm having a very hard day. <laughs> I know, I said. I didn't know. But I said I know. Because I was the asshole who had known something was fragile and still pitched the rock through the glass. I made lying that night. My mom, Armando, and I were all home for dinner. She started sweating from the spices. She was still dead-mouthed and damp-eyed, still deep in her mood. Our dryer didn't work too well, and her sweatpants smelled like mold. I glanced over at Armando and caught him looking at her. The way little kids look at ailing grandparents they seldom see. With the embarrassment, most people hide, and disbelief at how painful it can get. We were bad kids, I knew. We didn't respect her. We made her home unhappy, so she had to go to other homes. I excused myself to use the bathroom. The light bulb buzzed and flickered. As I was washing my hands, I said to no one, to myself, I didn't hit her. Like that was an excuse. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2016 curator of this program is Karen Finneyfrock. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Daniel Gunther and Levi Fuller. Recording engineers are Steve DeTori, Daniel Gunther, Mo Preventure, and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Seattle Jazz Composers Ensemble. Produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.